Amen. Amen. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, right now in the name of Jesus, we're grateful for your many blessings that you have given to us. As we come now, Lord, and to look into your word, we pray for your guidance and your direction that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Uh, We thank you, Father, for your word. We pray that the gospel will be made clear. That, God, if there are any here today that have not received your son, Jesus, as Savior, that today they would make that decision to follow him and trust him with their lives. And, God, we just thank you for the sacrifice of Calvary. We thank you for the blood that was shed for our sin. God, we just thank you so much for this moment of preaching. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to continue in our series from the book of Nehemiah and uh, looking at chapter 2. Uh, verses 11 through 18 is where we're going to concentrate on today. Uh, and our subject for today is as we talk about this Nehemiah perspective, the Nehemiah perspective. Uh, today we want to talk about rebuilding a broken people, rebuilding a broken people. Now, I walk through this study in the life of Nehemiah, a man with the type of life perspective that is worthy of emulating or copying brings us today to his arrival in Jerusalem, the place of his ancestral homeland. We had talked previously about how Nehemiah had gotten bad news from his homeland, how his brother had brought him this news that that Jerusalem was in distress and the people of Jerusalem were were in captivity. And those that had even survived the captivity that had made their way back to the homeland, there was great distress among them. And on top of all of that, the walls of the city that protected that city, that stood as reminders of God's provision for the city. Those walls were torn down. They were burned, the gates, with fire. And so here's Nehemiah had gone as a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, and he had said to the king that the walls of my city are burned down, and, I, and, I, and his face was sad before the king. And the king said, what's wrong with you, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah said, the place where my father's graves are is in great distress and in ruin. Would you let me go back and rebuild that community. And that is no small thing because in between that, that news that Nehemiah received and, and his approach to the king was this prayer that Nehemiah prayed. He had prayed to God for God's hand to grant him favor before the king. And as as the king heard Nehemiah's request, God did exactly that. He moved upon the heart of the king. And this is no small thing because remember, the king of Persia here is over uh, the entire Persian empire. And it is not a normal thing for a conquered people to be allowed to rebuild their community. But God had given Nehemiah great favor. And so here was Nehemiah had convinced the king to to not only grant him the opportunity 
to go and to rebuild the walls of his homeland. And not only had he done that, but he also convinced him to supply him with all of the tools necessary to complete his goal of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Now, just imagine what that means. King, not only uh, do I need to go and rebuild, but I need you to pay for it. (laughs) How wonderful is that to see God doing such a great thing in the life of Nehemiah? And Nehemiah then faces perhaps his greatest challenge. How will he go about reaching this objective to rebuild this community? And so many ideas, my brothers and sisters, that we have wither on the vine of good intentions. We intend to do good things. We intend to make changes. We wake up and, 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 and you know, this is probably best displayed at the beginning of a year. We call them New Year's resolutions. Isn't that right? We get up and we say, I am going to lose 20 pounds no matter what. I did that this year. And I finally had to do, as you all hear me say often, tell my wife that round is a shape. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so we have all of these good intentions that we are going to do these things. And many good ideas wither on the vines of intentions because we never seem to get to that place where we can actually do something. And, you know, those of us who... Who, 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 when we look at what is needed to be done, a lot of times we get the who needs to work. We, we get the what of what needs to be done. And, and sometimes we even understand the why, but sometimes, many times we fail to get the how. How is it going to be done? How is Nehemiah going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? Nehemiah faced a dilemma great uh, and, and then greater than the fact that the wall of Jerusalem was destroyed. He faced a people broken by 90 years of captivity. Generational captivity had set in. There were people who never knew what true freedom was really like. People had been born into a captivity and then Captivity was born into them. And it's one thing to be in captivity, but let me tell you, it's something completely different when captivity gets in you. Oh, that's a praiseworthy moment right there. When, when captivity gets in you and we see in many of our cities and towns and hamlets across this nation that people are not only in the captivity of sin, but captivity has gotten into them. And so we see this situation in Jerusalem. The people who were born in captivity, captivity became a way of life. Bondage was all that they knew. And as I previously shared with you, Jerusalem was a city. And as a city, it had some of the same problems common to cities. A multitude of people with a multitude of needs. And in this case, living under the authority of people culturally and spiritually different than themselves. The people of Jerusalem were broken. 
Persia came in with all of their customs and all of their ideas and their way of doing things and completely wiped out what the people had known during this captivity. And it led to a brokenness. They were broken as their walls were broken. Not only were their walls broken, but the very spirit of the people were broken. Their spirit was broken. Their, 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 their drive, their, their zest for life was missing. Does that sound familiar? When we look in urban communities across our country and we see that there are people that are just kind of going through the motions, that are living in, in a captive state, so to speak, where, where crisis is the way in which they live every single day. And crisis has a way of putting people into bondage. Every day you must wake up and decide, uh, uh, how am I going to eat today? How am I going to live today? How am I going to get bills paid today? It's a great thing when NIPSCO gets paid. Huh? That's right. And so, so this is, a, this is a, a, a circumstance that can break the spirit of a person. Brokenness of spirit is a direct result of this type of captivity and bondage. In fact, that's exactly what captivity is designed to do, is to break the spirit of the captor or those in captivity. Those who are in captivity, it's designed to break your spirit. History proves that prolonged captivity will even have the captive defending and siding with the captor. It's called the Stockholm effect. That if you're in captivity long enough, eventually you begin to defend the people or the thing that put you into captivity. Now, let me help you understand what happens when when sin runs amok in a community. After a while, people start calling wrong right. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yesterday, I read an article by John W. Fountain, and we have some copies of it here uh, for you today. And this article is entitled How to Raise a Killer. Now, think about that. It's a bold thing for a, a, a black man, John W. Fountain, to, to write in the Sun-Times newspaper, uh, who grew up, a man who grew up in Austin neighborhood in Chicago, to write this article, How to Raise a Killer. And what he puts in there, he says that here are the problems that lead to children growing up and thinking that violence is the only way they can live. And so children at 11 years old pick up guns. And decide that they want to be a killer. How does that happen in a community where sin, it happens because sin runs wild. And sooner or later, we start calling wrong right. We're not disturbed anymore. When we see young men walking down the street with their pants hanging below their their, their bottom parts. I said that as nice as I could, by the way. (laughs) doesn't bother us like it should when we see young girls get up in the morning and go to the grocery store and they're walking around in their pajamas why why does that not bother us because we've lived and we've become uh, desensitized to this sinful captivity and we begin to say well that's okay everybody's just expressing themselves 
doesn't bother us anymore when we see a three-year-old. Earrings in his ear, braids in his head, sagging pants on, and he's dressed up like a thug, perhaps. And, and let me tell you something. Thug has no color, by the way, just so you know. Amen. And, he's, and we see that young man and we look at him and before he even has a chance to develop an identity of his own, we have placed an identity upon him. And I'm saying to you, mother, if you're dressing your child up like that, let me help you understand something. Stop dressing up like what you like. Did I say that out loud? I'm sorry, I didn't. That was... That was, that was probably one of them inside words that got out. I just, but, but understand that, that this, is, this is what happens when there's prolonged uh, atmosphere of sin allowed to go unchecked with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see people calling wrong right. It's people were broken. They were broken. And so when we look, as for us, one of the most difficult things for us is to admit just how broken we can be. We will go to great lengths to defend ourselves, even in the face of overwhelming evidence of our broken nature. We will disavow our brokenness. We'll disavow that broken nature, even though everyone can readily see how broken we are. We will defend our sin. And the fact that everybody around us know it's sin. We'll make excuses for what we do. See, Pastor, you don't understand. I, I, I had to cuss them out. They were asking for it. <laughs> I, I, I had to do that. See, we, we'll make those excuses. I had to treat my neighbor uh, poorly because I was defending myself. I had to go up there and tell the teacher off. Because they didn't do something that I thought they should have done for my child. Well, if your teacher told your child to be, sit down and be quiet so they can learn. Actually, that's a good thing. But again, we're so used and accustomed to children living without any boundaries or any authority whatsoever. That when they run into authority somehow, some way, that's, that's not right. Don't speak to my kids. I was saying to someone yesterday that at this campus, I love all the children here. There is not a child that's come to this campus so far that I haven't hugged and greeted and loved on. And you know why I do that? Because I reserve the right to speak into their lives. Amen. So, so we, we, so, so now the question before us is how do we move from this, this, this brokenness to, to a place where we need to be? How do people get so broken? It seems that if each passing generation produces a great and more destructive level of brokenness than the previous generation, sin, my brothers and sisters, is a direct cause of our brokenness. Look at somebody say sin. Just say sin. Sin is what, the cause, what causes our brokenness. Our broken nature began in the garden when Adam and Eve decided to go against God's word. That broken nature was passed down to, to, to generationally to all human beings. And it is unchecked sin 
that is left to linger, fester, and flourish in the hearts of people that creates the reality that one generation is more broken than the previous generation. We have generations of spiritual retreat uh, evident in our cities. We replace the gospel with social services. I know that's not a popular opinion. But people needed capital T, gospel truth. And what we gave them is something that'll just put a band-aid on the situation. We replaced all of that. The church became so concerned and interested in, in doing social justice things that somehow we lost the opportunity to share the gospel. It became secondary. We put more faith in our ability to do social service activity, social justice movements than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We miss what Martin Luther King was really talking about. Now this, I I really didn't plan on saying this, but let me share this with you. We missed it. And here's what we missed. Martin Luther King's underlying principle of, of civil rights was the gospel of Jesus Christ. His underlying principle was do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. That God is no respecter of person. That God loves all people and that we're all image bearers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He never put one group of people over another. And so we understand that this is this is what we have exchanged the gospel message for some idea of social justice. So we know that we now share this common broken nature. The real question regards the rebuilding of our brokenness, the reconstruction of our fracture in our hearts, our minds and our spirits. How do we restore what sin took away? How does that which sin tore down get rebuilt? Let's look in this text in Nehemiah for answers to the questions of rebuilding a broken people. Now, most messages I've heard from this text focus upon the decision to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. However, it is my suggestion to you today that the true lesson learned is the priority of rebuilding people and what rebuilt people might accomplish towards their own community. This is a message of restoration a challenge to confront the actual problem. It is my belief that this text provides a challenge of sorts for us. The challenge for the people of God to become agents of restoration for the express purpose of rebuilding the lives of people in order to restore their communities. This time is now. The people of God must act now. We cannot afford to wait another generation and watch sin and despair and discouragement and disgrace destroy our communities. We must act now. The scripture gives us a mandate to act in Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. This is the text that Jesus quoted, part of this text he quoted when he announced his ministry. And there's a great, great 
connection here for us. He says in Isaiah, Isaiah writes these words, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. God is talking about a message of deliverance from captivity of sin to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn verse three to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning and the garment of praise watch this now instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord not for the glory of the church, not for the glory of people, not for the glory of the government, but that the Lord may be glorified. And look at what happens in verse four. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Here is our calling. Here is one of our purposes to take the gospel into places where the gospel is needed. To remove ourselves from the comfort of the salt shaker and actually become the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, there are three important elements I want to share with you to rebuilding and restoring broken people. And the first one is this. Rebuilding people requires the right provisions. Rebuilding people requires the right provisions. In order to rebuild people, we must have the right stuff. Got to have the right stuff. Nehemiah made sure that before he left for Jerusalem that he had secured the right stuff. How can you build anything without the proper materials necessary for building that thing? I watched the process of how this room that you sit in today was transformed from a cafeteria to this beautiful worship space. Let's praise God for that. Amen. But it happened because the builders had the right stuff. If you don't have what's needed you don't get the right pro uh, outcome. You don't get the right finished product, but you have the right, you have to have the right stuff. And so Nehemiah, if you look at quickly at verses seven and eight in chapter two, Nehemiah says, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me from the, to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the Lord's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. Nehemiah needed the right materials. He knew that the building project could not be completed if he did not have the right stuff. And this, and this verse ends with saying, and the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand, I love that part, for the good hand 
of my God was upon me. Amen. He needed the right stuff. He needed those things even to build a house that he was going to live in. He needed to get all the materials gathered together and God made provision for that. How many times do we fail to rebuild the lives of those who come into the house of God simply because we are building with the wrong stuff? We are building with testimonies to our own piety when we should be building lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are telling people how wonderful we are when we should be telling them how wonderful Jesus is. We got to have the right stuff. We are building with stuff that gives the glory to us rather than that which gives the glory to God. One of the toughest things that I've seen in my years as a pastor is really helping people understand how your life should glorify God. You would think that that would be easy for believers. But after a while, we get comfortable. We fall into routine. And we don't want to be challenged to go beyond that which is comfortable to us. And we need to understand that that challenge to move beyond is exactly where God wants you to do. Because that beyond place is going to glorify him. You'll know when you get to that beyond place that it wasn't it wasn't you that was able to make this happen. You know, when you get to that beyond place, that it was only God that could make this happen. And there's the glory to him. And so and so we have to we have to recognize that. Nehemiah knew that securing the right stuff for the job was not some act of fate or happenstance. He gave the credit and glory to whom it was due. He said, the hand of my God. And often we don't experience that mighty hand of God because we're too busy trying to live outside the will of God. Oh, don't let that get by you. You know, if you're not willing to live within the will of God, what are you praying about? (laughs) Lord, bless me. Well, you, you, you don't want to live within his will. You don't want to live with it, walk within his, his, the boundaries that God has set. But you want God to bless you. You want to be able to go and do whatever you want to do when you want to do it. And you say, now, Lord, bless me. God says, I'm not going to waste provision on you. Because God wants you to recognize that the best possible outcome for your life is to live within his boundaries, to live and walk in righteousness. That is what God wants for you because he knows that is best for you. How many decisions have you made on your own and found yourself really messed up? Just throw your hand up real fast. Don't let anybody see that. Don't, don't. People think you've been saved a long time. Don't let working out for you why not just do what God said do and so we want God's hand but we don't want the responsibility now the second element the second element to rebuilding and restoring a broken people is that rebuilding people requires true knowledge of the circumstance when Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem the first thing he did was gain True knowledge of their circumstance. He had heard from his brother just how desperate the nature of their condition, but he needed 
to know it firsthand. It's one thing when somebody tells you how bad things are. It's another thing when you see it for yourself. You can read in the newspaper about how bad the south side of Chicago is, but drive through there. Huh? And see it for yourself. You can, you can hear uh, uh, about how tough it is for those, those Christians uh, 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 in, on the mountain in Iraq who are, who are stuck there because of the terrorism. But if you see the picture, it transforms your thinking. When Nehemiah got there, he needed to know firsthand. Now, let's take a look at Nehemiah's inspection of the circumstance. In verse 11, he says, so I went to Jerusalem. I was there three days. Then I arose in the night. I and a few men with me. And I told no one of what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. He didn't tell anybody. You know that there are times, folks, when God tells you something, you just need to keep your mouth shut. Huh? Sometimes, sometimes when God, when God speaks to your heart, something's revealed to you in scripture, you don't need to get on the phone and say, Ooh, let me tell you what God said. Nehemiah didn't, didn't go broadcasting this throughout. He didn't tell anybody. Look at what he says. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. He says, there was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. You know what that says to me? Nehemiah didn't need an entourage. He didn't need a long line of nice cars. <laughs> he didn't need chariots and, and a parade and to march in and say, I am here. Nehemiah. He didn't do that. Quietly, the only animal that was with them was the one he was riding upon. Which means the few men that were with him were walking. Right? They were walking. He says, I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. He says, then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. Nehemiah performed a detailed inspection on the physical circumstances of Jerusalem. Why did he need to do that? He needed to see firsthand what the problem was. Too many times we react without knowing what the real circumstances are. We react and we give. And that's what I told you. That's a social service mentality. Sometimes people need simply a hand up and not just a hand out. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Sometimes in our desire to act, we want to make ourselves feel better to remove our guilt when in essence we are actually doing more harm than good because we're not giving people what they really need and that is the truth. You can't live your life uncontrolled in sin and all these things and think that things are going to work out for you. You can't go from man to man or woman to woman or all these things and think that somehow God is going to bless that mess. God doesn't bless mess. And so there's something that stands out to me regarding the timing and essence of Nehemiah's inspection. He goes out at night and he tells no city official of his inspection plan. 
Why did Nehemiah go out at night? Why did he why did he not tell anybody? The fact that he went out at night is worthy of note in that it indicates Nehemiah did not intend to become a distraction. He did not place his ego ahead of the work that God called him to do. He didn't need to go out where everybody could see what he was doing and give him praise. He was there for a purpose and he remained focused on his purpose. If we plant this campus to the praise of our glory, it is going to fail miserably. But if we plant it to the praise of God's glory, then success will be in the changed lives that come here. It's his glory. One cannot help but wonder what Nehemiah saw on his night journey through the streets and around the wall of Jerusalem. The author does not tell us about what exactly that he saw. But speculation could infer that Nehemiah saw a city in distress, vulnerable from a physical as well as a spiritual perspective. Perhaps he saw at night some of what we see at night in the cities, in the streets of our cities, people without hope, communities without protective covering of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you old schoolers in here, you know about that Houdini song. <laughs> what comes out at night? Don't say, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, don't say. Trying to get me in trouble. Don't say that. But think about it. What do you see at night in Gary, in Maryville, in Chicago? What happens at night? Sin likes the covering of night. Sin likes to be in a position where it is less likely to be seen. And so a lot of stuff that you don't normally see in the daytime, you see at night. Never been to a club that was open at 12 noon. (laughs) Come on in here and dance and party and have fun. No, man, somebody might see me going. You don't see You just don't see that. But at night, oh, it's jumping off in there then at night, isn't it? You drive down Broadway at night, there's people standing outside the club, just hanging out. You don't see that in the morning. I just thought I'd throw that in for free. I I know none none of you ever go those places, so I (laughs) So what happens if we would walk the streets of our community at night? What would we see? Nehemiah also knew that sometimes the best assessments of circumstances occur when the fewest people are aware of the inspection. He says in verse 16, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. He didn't even tell the people who were going to be working on the wall. Now, you know, that's a bad dude right there. I am going to rebuild this wall. That's the project that God has given me. And I'm not even going to tell you how hard you're going to have to work to build this wall up. And I thought about why didn't Nehemiah tell anybody, especially the workers? Because you all know how we are. As soon as the pastor started laying out vision, we start questioning. I don't know if he's really hearing from God. <laughs> that doesn't sound like something I need to be doing. <laughs> I got to work. I don't know what he's thinking. <laughs> All these meetings and things. 
So a lot of times we just have to be quiet. When inspection is going on. He told no city officials. He didn't call a parade. He didn't call a parade with the city council. He didn't tell the mayor or any of those things. And, and, and it, it's because Nehemiah knew that he had to see the real circumstances of the city. He didn't want anybody to get a chance to sweep up the sidewalk. He wanted to see it exactly like it is. Our third, our third element that really comes to us in rebuilding people's lives, rebuilding requires personal commitment and personal investment. Personal commitment and personal investment. In verse 17, Nehemiah says, or the author writes, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Look at that. He didn't say, you see, the, I see the trouble you in. That's an important distinction. Do you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may longer suffer derision. How interesting is that? How interesting is that that Nehemiah would say that, that, that you see the trouble that we are in. He was not born in Jerusalem. This was his first time coming to this area. And yet he had such a connection with his people that immediately he says that this trouble is not just your trouble, but it's our trouble. Watch this now. If we're going to change our cities and our communities, we must stop talking about their trouble and understand that it's our trouble. Look at how Nehemiah placed himself right smack dab in the middle of the people's distress. Words like, we are in trouble. Let us build so we may no longer be in derision or disgrace. If you want the work of rebuilding lives, you cannot do that from a distance. The reason we're here is not because God is not doing great things in Gary. We're here because God is doing great things in Gary. And we can't do it from a distance. We've got to get up close. We've got to get in this. We've got to see that whatever trouble Gary is in or South Chicago or Hammond or East Chicago or Griffith or Maryville, that it's not just their problem. It's our problem. Too long. Believers have kept a distance. We must become the them. For too long, believers have honestly tried to change lives without getting our hands dirty. We don't want to get our hands dirty. We have that, that, uh, that uh, uh, NIMBY attitude, not in my backyard. NIMBY, I, not in my back. I don't want to get my hands dirty. And, we, and we, we'd rather lob prayers into the city. We'd rather send God to the city. You know how we pray. Come on, Lord, go down there and bless the city. We send God all over town, don't we? Send God to the city. We send him to the hospital. We send him to the prison. I know God is sitting there thinking, didn't I tell you to go? To <laughs> 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 
Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, 23, or 9, 22 and 23. He says, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And he does that. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings every day. We have a prayer wall and every day I go to the prayer wall and there's a little prayer on there that a child wrote that says, I, I, I pray that my daddy might pick me up because I've never seen him. And I read that prayer every day. And it reminds me that this is not just that child's problem. This is my problem. When fathers aren't taking care of their children, it's not just society's problem. It's our problem. It's my problem. God has trusted me with the gospel. So I do it all. Paul says for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in his blessings. Nehemiah made a personal commitment to the truth in his efforts to rebuild people. This is why I believe the people were more important than the wall. He says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision or disgrace. Nehemiah believed that the condition of the wall brought shame and disgrace upon the people. If we are truly going to be agents of restoration, we must be willing to commit to the truth that our world is one where shame and disgrace are two words with little impact. What is shameful today? What is shameful? I'm almost done. What is, what is shameful? What's in disgrace today? People can do whatever they want. Let me tell you something. If you get up and go to the store in the same clothes you slept in, simply because you're too trifling and lazy to change, then that's a disgrace. If you have money to get your child a haircut and you refuse to do so, because you're too lazy to take them to the barber, that's a disgrace. If you're eating well and all that and stuff, your hair done and your fingernails are, are, are all polished up, and you got nice clothes and your children barely have food to eat or clothes to wear to school, that is a disgrace. We have to restore. The gospel restores this idea of shame. How can I stand before God, a sinner? I need the power of God and the sacrifice of Jesus' blood to wash my life because I can't stand before God in the condition that I'm in because that was a disgrace. We have to restore that. It is Nehemiah's willingness to tell the people the awful truth of their condition that readies their heart for change. In a few words, he sets in motion a conviction that falls upon an entire community to change the minds of the people in our city. We must speak some awful truth, but with the good news of the gospel attached to it. You might be living in disgrace, but praise be to God that you do not have to stay in the disgrace that you are in. It's time to move out of shame. Send 30 day notice, whatever you got to do and say, I'm leaving shame. I'm leaving disgrace. I'm moving towards a future. I'm moving towards a better chance. I'm moving towards a better life with Jesus Christ as my savior. Capital T truth is what liberates the minds of people. 
And finally, my brothers, Nehemiah informs the people of his personal commitment to an investment in truth of God. Verse 18, he says, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. In this verse, we see truth and the response to truth. And Nehemiah gave God the glory. Perhaps the reason more people do not respond to our message is that we share the gospel as if it is about us and not about Jesus. In a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate an all about him Sunday. And we're going to remind ourselves just how much the gospel is about Jesus. Yes, he loves us. But the gospel is about his sacrifice, his dying in place of our sins. It's about Jesus. God should get the glory. The people here in Jerusalem responded to the truth. Let us rise up and build. They engaged in their own uplift. It is amazing that when you tell people the truth, how ready they are to engage in their own uplift. When they hear the truth, they say, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? When they hear the truth, the reason that is, is because the truth is liberating. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. There's liberty in the truth. And when they hear the truth of that gospel, what then must I do? Just like the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? We came here today to gather one of the reasons is to tell you what you can do to be saved. Our prayer counselors are going to come forward now, and I want to just share with you just for a moment, if we stand in this place, that God has sent his son Jesus to this world that we might, we might have opportunity to believe the gospel. Jesus came and died on the cross, shed his blood for sinners just like us. As you look around this room, there's nobody here that's a believer that doesn't have a past that's marked with sin and selfishness and the shame and disgrace. And even if you can't remember some of those things that you've done, let me tell you something. You were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. You inherited a sin nature. And if you're here today, I share with you that there is a remedy that God has for you. If you're here today and you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'm going to invite you to come down front right now and let me pray for you very quickly. And our prayer counselors will take you into our prayer room. If you're here today and you think Bethel Church is a place where, where I want to continue to grow as a Christian, let us meet you right now here at this altar. Take this moment to just come forward. If you're here today and say, I just need somebody to pray for me. I just need somebody to pray for me. We have people here that will, will pray with you. Whatever your situation is, whatever your circumstance has been, God is not obsessed with your past. He's excited about your future. And your future can begin right now, right today. And so if you're here today and you'd like to come for prayer, would you take this moment and just come forward? Don't be ashamed. Every head bowed, every eye closed. 
We don't want to be ashamed of this. This is your time. This is your time. 